from Washington, D.C., across the nation and around the world. Stand by for an overview of the hottest topics and people being discussed on air, online, at the coffee shop and across the backyard fence. Powered by the research of Talkers Magazine, the national conversation. It's time for the Michael Harrison Wrap. Here's Michael Harrison. Thank you, Victoria Jones. Monday, January 31st through Friday, February 4th, 2022. It was a week highlighted by race, health, wealth, and stealth. We're about to embark upon a powerful hour of Black Belt Talk Radio, during which your tolerance for hearing different but legitimate points of view will be tested. We've got lefties, righties, and fence-sitters. Please don't get angry. Just listen closely and maintain a degree of educated skepticism. We'll be joined by Kevin Casey, Richard Neer, Grace Curley, Tom Shattuck, Steve Ebert, and Victoria Jones. Influential yappers from across the country with microphones, smartphones, and digital recording devices. Sharing their observations and the feelings of their target constituents with whom they do a daily dance of affirmation. In a fragmented, noisy world where we try to avoid the modern-day syndrome of seeking victory at the expense of truth. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Rap, heard coast to coast and around the world on great radio stations across the U.S. and the U.K. The week's hottest political and social topics discussed in the American talk media. Information is gathered from a variety of sources, including data tracked by the broadcasting trade publication Talkers Magazine, of which I'm editor and publisher. Okay, here we go. Joining us now is Kevin Casey, executive editor of Talkers Magazine. Kevin, give us a rundown of the 10 most talked about stories on talk shows in America this past week. Thank you, Michael. At number 10 this week, winter storms, climate change, and the Rudy Giuliani masked singer flap. As the weekend approached, another series of frigid winter storms gripped much of the nation, dropping snow and ice on major cities and population centers stretching from the Rockies through the plains into the Midwest and New England. And speaking of cold... The surprise appearance of Rudy Giuliani on the musical game show The Masked Singer received a frigid response as two of the judges, Robin Thicke and Ken Jeong, stormed off the set in protest of the controversial former New York mayor popping out of a costume disguise. What fun. At number nine, U.S.-China relations and the Winter Olympics. One of the most diplomatically awkward and unpredictable installments of the Winter Games officially kicks off in Beijing this weekend. Watch out what you say. Tensions between the U.S. and China, the ongoing pandemic, heightened communist surveillance of visiting athletes and media crews, not to mention the use of artificial ice and snow, cast shadows of uncertainty over this year's Winter Games, in which the pros and cons of China's zero-COVID policy will be on display and tested. At number eight, the Joe Rogan Spotify controversy tied with concerns over big tech and censorship. More musical recording artists are joining Neil Young in his exit from Spotify in protest of the platform hosting the Joe Rogan podcast, which they claim disseminates misinformation about the pandemic. How ironic that champions of free speech such as Joni Mitchell, David Crosby, Stephen Stills, and Graham Nash would be involved in a boycott based on shutting down someone else's participation in the national conversation. The truth is, all of this is an exercise in First Amendment rights. At number seven, race relations with a focus on the Whoopi Goldberg suspension, Ryan Flores' NFL lawsuit, and speculation over President Biden's forthcoming Supreme Court nomination of a black woman to the bench. 
Many people think Whoopi Goldberg's two-week suspension from The View for saying something about the Holocaust born of ignorance and not necessarily malice is extremely harsh. Especially since she offered an apology for her remarks. Is Whoopi a racist and or anti-Semitic? Probably not. Is the NFL racist? Who the hell knows? Is Biden's promise to appoint a black woman an act of reverse racism? Sounds more like political pandering to me. All of this social and political turmoil took place during the opening days of Black History Month. At number six, Jeff Zucker exits CNN. Fans of the Fox News Channel and talk media are finding this latest human drama to be absolutely delicious. They're celebrating what they describe as the excessively woke news network having a big bite taken out of its sanctimonious butt. At number five, Russia-Ukraine tensions tied with the U.S. raid in Syria and Middle East unrest. The massive buildup of Russian troops on the Ukraine border continues to keep the world on edge. It's viewed by the U.S. and its allies as a potential assault on NATO security. Putin, on the other hand, explains it as protecting Mother Russia's diminished borders from Western aggression. Hopefully, the diplomats are behind the scenes doing their thing effectively. At number four, the January 6th investigation tied with the 2022 and 2024 elections. Pressure continues to mount on former President Donald Trump as investigators get closer to implicating him personally in an insurrection erupting from what is described as a slow coup to overturn a legitimate election. Interestingly, Trump's insistence that the election was stolen from him is beginning to get on the nerves of powers that be in the GOP, who are gravitating to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as a fresh, forward-thinking leader for 2024. As they say, a year and a half in politics is an eternity. At number three, crime and violence tied with an uptick in police murders. Speaking of elections, lawlessness in our cities is one of, if not the most important issues shaping the political discussions as we head closer to the midterms. The increase in the violent killing of police officers in the line of duty is putting discussion of gun control back on the table. President Biden met with New York officials this week to discuss gun violence and pay tribute to two NYPD officers. Wilbert Moore and Jason Rivers, who were shot dead while doing their jobs. At number two, the economy. The same nagging problems continue to persist. Inflation, supply chain breakdowns, labor shortages, and a looming sense of uncertainty. And let's face it, uncertainty about our financial security generates lots of angst and depression. And at number one this week, COVID-19, masks, mandates, vaccines, and politics. Even as the Omicron variant begins to recede, the political debate over mask mandates continues to rage. And right or wrong, An increasing number of Americans from across the political spectrum are becoming disgusted with the pandemic and what they say is blatant and dangerous government overreach in declaring and enforcing mandates. All eyes back to China, the Olympics, and the authoritarian communist country's zero COVID policy. Thank you, Kevin Casey from Talkers Magazine. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. There was a tremendous amount of conversation regarding race relations in America this week. One of the topics driving the conversation was the lawsuit filed by African-American football coach Brian Flores against several teams in the NFL, claiming discrimination on their part in the hiring of head coaches, most of whom are white. 
for insight, let's touch base with Sports Talk Radio host and Big Apple broadcasting legend Richard Neer of Sports Radio WFAN New York. Is there a race problem in the NFL? And uh, where do you think this is going to go if, in fact, it does have traction? Well, I think it's like a lot of other things. It will draw attention to an issue, but I don't necessarily know that there is an outcome uh, via the courts because I don't know what kind of settlement would be offered. You know, are we talking reparations here where anybody who's ever been a coach, an assistant coach in the NFL gets money because they weren't given an opportunity to be a head coach? Uh, Can you force individual owners to hire people uh, based on their race, creed, color, as opposed to the best person for the job? I don't know that the commissioner really has that power. So I don't really know what kind of outcome could be affected uh, through the legal system. I mean, the league, let's say, could propose uh, giving teams with a black head coach an extra draft pick or more latitude under the salary cap. Uh, However, I would imagine other owners would uh, be in umbrage of that because it would not be a level playing field. So uh, I I really don't see any kind of uh, settlement here through the courts. The the numbers of of white coaches uh, compared to black coaches is very, 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 you know, it's really disproportionate to what one would expect, especially since – a majority of the players are African-American and there seems to be a gigantic level of consciousness about race relations uh, evident when you watch football games. They have, uh, you know, end hate and Black Lives Matter and all of these things emblazoned on their helmets and within their literature. So uh, there's mixed messages coming out of all of this. Is this just, in your opinion, coincidental uh, that it, this is the way the cards have fallen for various reasons that go into these complex uh, situations? Or do you think that there is some type of uh, a, a bias or a um, systemic um, racism uh, at this particular level of the NFL? I think that in a hiring practices, we tend to hire people that are like us, that we are comfortable with. And I don't know, you know, if you wanted to find that as systemic racism, I guess you could. But you notice in various companies when somebody is hired, it tends to be somebody you've worked with before or a friend or a a compadre of sorts. Uh, Somebody pointed something interesting out to me. I'll, I'll throw this out there. I don't know if there's any validity to it, but. The suggestion is that upon being eligible for the NFL draft, you know, 70% of the players are black. So the white players who play in college don't have the skills to become NFL players, but they love the game. So what do they do? They go into coaching. They go into other endeavors within the league. So... Let's take a, a, a black player who's played in the league 10 years and finally retires versus a white college player who gets into coaching. He's got 10 years experience on the player in, in terms of his experience in coaching, which may give him a leg up getting a job down the line. It's an interesting proposition, and it may be true. 
And uh, without accusing you or anyone of racism, I, I'm definitely mindful of conducting this discussion in as objective and nonpartisan and non, uh, you know, judgmental a level as I can. I'm sure that and you didn't say that was your idea. You said you heard this idea. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that this idea would um, would get a lot of negative blowback from people who would say, well, that's based on the assumption that black athletes are inherently better, that black people are inherently better at athletics than white people. You know, you know why should there be that type of situation where white athletes don't have the opportunity to hone their skills, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure that um, people even listening to this broadcast, some of them are saying, oh, racist comment uh, or uh, reverse racism, or maybe African-Americans would take umbrage with the idea that they are inherently more athletic, you know, by the numbers than, than white people. This is, this is not a new argument, is it? Well, it's it's not, and and the reason I don't think it's a racist idea that was proposed is that we're looking at results. I mean, if seventy percent of uh, the players in a league belong to a certain group, I'm not saying that the the and I don't think I, the person who proposed this was saying that that group got it because they were advantaged. It's just a fact that they got the job because of merit. Um, you know, there's no quota in the NFL as to how many players are black, how many are white, how many are Asian, et cetera, et cetera. It's the best players. It is very much a meritocracy because the name of the game is to win unless you are perhaps a, a Ross who owns the Miami team who allegedly, and I, I stress allegedly, offered Brian Flores $100,000 per game to deliberately lose the games. Mm-hmm. Now, that to me is really egregious, and I certainly can see an outcome there, whereas if these allegations are true, that this man should be told to uh, divest himself of the team because it goes against everything that competitive sports is supposed to be all about. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> we hear about tanking all the time. For those listening to this who are not familiar with it, in um, in many leagues, and I and I, I really am only familiar with the practice in the um, NFL, which has the draft and has that whole mm-hmm. dance. NBA, thing same thing. The NBA, the same thing. Uh, the reward to the lower you are in the uh, stats at the end of the season, the higher your number of pick is in the draft. And I think the, the, the leagues do this to create parity and to, to break up dynasties and give you know teams that are disadvantaged for any number of reasons an opportunity. Hey, we just saw that with the Bengals, didn't we? It wasn't um, uh, Joe Burrow a first round, a first pick? Wasn't he like the top college quarterback? And they got him and look at the results. They went from worst to first. <laughs> so uh, it, it, you would think that there would at least be this idea in the mind of owners as they're coming down the pike and uh, they have no chance of getting in the playoffs. They have a lousy season. Um, I guess my question to you, now that I've clarified that to the listeners who are not sports enthusiasts, um, do you think that teams on occasion or on a lot of occasions purposefully lose no matter how it's done in order to get the benefit of tanking and a, and a higher pick? 
seems that it, it, it is prevalent. That's longtime WFAN New York personality Richard Near. His website is richardnear.com. Coming up next, a trip to Boston and a conversation with Next Gen Talkers Heavy 100 star Grace Curley of WRKO. You're plugged in to the Michael Harrison rap. One of the great bands of the golden age of album rock, Gun Hill Road, has been around for more than 50 years. The members of Gun Hill Road are Steve Goldrich, Paul Reich, Glenn Leopold, Brian Coonan, and yours truly, Michael Harrison. I wrote the lyrics to a song on our new album, What Year Is This? It's titled, I Know You're Real. It's about the relationship between human beings and our friends in the animal kingdom. I know you're real, I know you're real. Take a moment to write down the following web address to see the music video of this inspirational song that contains some wonderful animal images that'll rock your heart and soothe your soul. Here's the address. Write it down. I know you are real.com. That's I know you are real.com. If you love animals, you'll feel real good after seeing this video. I know you are real.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison rap. CNN President Jeff Zucker leaving his gig because of an undisclosed personal relationship at work that shows him in a very bad light, especially after the Chris Cuomo flap, has been a big buzz on news talk shows across America. Let's check in with Grace Curley of WRKO Boston. This is a huge story, and uh, I think part of the reason it's such a big story is because a lot of times... And Michael, I know you're you're very aware of this, but when these big shifts happen in a company, sometimes the original reasoning for why someone is resigning is not the full story. There's always kind of more layers to it, which I think we're seeing now. And it will be interesting to see. And yesterday, I actually saw Brian Stelter, who is the media correspondent for CNN, talking about this domino effect that this firing or this resignation could have on the on the network and all the information we're going to get now on a variety of different stories and different news people. So I think anyone out there in, in media is watching this. It's interesting how we have wars now between um, networks and radio stations, mostly the cable news networks, Fox, CNN, MSNBC. You know, you get Newsmax in that mix and there's a few others, but basically it's left and the right. And I love the way the commentators from each side go after the other as if their you-know-what doesn't stink and the other ones are completely and totally corrupt and they almost get pleasure in seeing the uh, the network that they're ideologically opposed to suffering. And um, it, it, it just seems very personal and, um, uh, I don't know, It's it, there's a lot of revenge and uh, nastiness, <laughs> uh, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it was all about just making people feel like if you weren't on board with what was happening at CNN or if you didn't buy into their narrative, then you were a bad person. And now that is why I think a lot of people are looking at this and going, well, it's all coming home to roost. You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you're, 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 I guess, what they call a next-gen talk show host. You've been doing this now for a long time, but you're very young, and uh, you bring a very fresh, new-generation approach to the medium. Um 
there's the whole social aspect that this CNN thing brings to light. It has nothing to do with politics or uh, the war between CNN and Fox, but just everyday life in a big corporation or everyday life in the workplace. And um, my wife and I have been binging on uh, two old shows that really were one show that changed its name and its direction back um, around 20 years ago, 18 years ago. They ran for a long time, The Practice and Boston Legal. And you're in Boston. Um, and uh, you look back on those shows, and they were so cutting edge and so hip and so in touch with what was going on and, and politically incorrect at the time. I don't know if you've ever seen those shows, but um, they're very representative of that era that is slowly fading over the horizon. You know, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, the war in, in uh, Iraq, um, post 9-11, that whole period. And the men and the women in the office, since big law firm or law firms, I mean, they're just doing it like rabbits. Everybody is involved with everybody else. They, 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 they have, they're, they're in each other's faces. Everybody knows each other's private lives. And um, I, I kind of wonder whether a show like that would fly today. Um, you're you're not in the uh, the market, as they say. You're you're a young married woman at this point in your life. But what's what's your view of what it's like for young people who who's are married to their careers, where their career and the time at work is such a, a pressing part of their life in this environment, where uh, if you get involved with a coworker, you you could be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, it's interesting you should point that out because I think that that issue, um, and, and that's kind of something that people have debated for, for decades, is should you date in, in the workplace? Should you, you know, bring your personal life into work or, you know, vice versa? And it, it's kind of interesting because I think it really got ramped up during COVID. And when you look at this Jeff Zucker situation where he's involved with, I think, someone who's considered his equal in the workplace. I mean, she was a big-time executive as well. But they did say, and I'm, I'm hearing reports this might not be 100% truthful, if you can believe that from CNN, but they did say this relationship changed during COVID. And while I'm not sure if that's true in this particular situation, I do know that a lot of people – get involved with people they work with during COVID because there's really no one else to meet. I mean, socially, you're not going to bars, you're not going out, you're, you know, you're kind of just with the people you work with. So it would make sense that people start dating in the office. But I do think it comes with a lot more risk and a lot more uh, potential for things to go wrong than if you were to date, if you were to keep your personal life and your work life separate. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's the only opportunity some people have to really meet anybody, even if there weren't COVID. Right. Although it's interesting, you mentioned COVID. Um, I would imagine, and um, uh, you, you know, we all know in real life, there are all kinds of uh, relationships, and uh, some of them are affairs, and some people uh, have private relationships that nobody knows about, even if it may not be, you know, extramarital. The, the, the life is complicated when it comes to relationships. I wonder how many people really, really suffered emotionally and in terms of uh, their love life when the lockdowns came back um, in uh, 2020. 
and you know people were were home quarantining in some cases they were quarantining with the wrong person and absolutely unable to be with the right person and that went on for weeks and months and year uh, it's uh, it, 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 there probably are a lot of stories of heartbreak and pain out there that uh, never really made it to the news what are your thoughts about that idea Michael I think I think that's the perfect way to say it I mean I'm 29 years old a lot of my friends are uh, just getting engaged or just getting married. But then I have other friends who are still looking and they feel like I just lost two years. You know, I'm two years behind the eight ball. I'm two years behind. And while I don't think that um, that's true, I think that every, every, thing is a learning opportunity, and I know my friends are going to find the person that they're supposed to be with, my heart does break for them that while some of us were quarantining at home with our best friends and enjoying, you know, and quarantine was hard for everyone in different ways, but if you had someone with you um, and you knew that you found your person, then it was a lot easier than someone who's sitting there alone wishing that they could go out and meet somebody and they can't. So I, I think that was, I think it's, it's another element of this that you're right. Those stories we don't hear about because maybe to some people they don't seem as important. But I've had people reach out to me before and say, please don't forget about people like that because that is a, a lot of heaviness to take on. If you're a single person and you're looking for a partner and you've had no opportunity over the past two years, that is story, and it doesn't get told enough. That's heavy 100 member Grace Curley of WRKO Boston. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Let's stay in New England, moving a bit south and west to Hartford, Connecticut, and visit with Tom Shattuck, who hosts a daily program on our affiliate WTIC. Tom, what are you and your listeners saying about the COVID-19 mask mandates at this stage in the rise and fall of the pandemic? It's interesting because it can be overlaid uh, nationally, uh, mm-hmm. what's happening locally in Connecticut. You've got concerned parents now who are saying, enough, enough, we've had enough of this stuff. We want to take the masks off of our kids. And much like nationally, you've got, you know, Senate Democrats and the state authorities saying, hey, parents, pipe down, be quiet. We don't want to hear, we don't want you loud. We don't want you hounding people at Board of Education meetings. But meanwhile, the parents have come to these meetings and come to my show bearing these a pile of studies showing that these masks are um, are diminishing the mental well-being of the kids. And there's a bunch of studies out that show that it, it hurts uh, cognitive function and learning, and kids' scores are slipping. And also, it's just it's un- inhuman to 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 communicate with just the eyes, without your mouth, without all of the other things on your face that offer validation, etc. Is is unnatural. So what we've had is a, um, not only concerned parents saying they've had enough, but even some teachers now. And this is a new thing for me. Recently, calling, including today, saying that they also want the masks gone. They don't know what to do. They can't do much because the unions are there, of course, forcing them to uh, to enforce this stuff. But people want to move on. Uh, you're saying they, that the teachers want to take off the masks. I I, I didn't quite get what you said uh that, that, exactly so okay even now teachers now are, are calling me and saying that we too are sick of this and we want to, it's not the union the union of course wants the masks to stay they want these regulations and uh, these restrictions to to stay till further notice it seems why do but you think that is why, why do you think the unions are are um so vehement about keeping the masks uh mandated 
Well, I think, it's, first of all, it helps with um, bargaining agreements. If it looks like the teachers are going to submit themselves to a, a level of risk, then that increases the role of the teachers' unions to bargain, which they've used previously for, for two years. And also, I think that probably that the, the union membership, um, one, they're very powerful, so they're not getting much pushback because there's nobody in a, in a blue state like Connecticut, of course, the, the Democrats are are beholden to the teachers' unions, so they're not hearing a lot of voices getting to them. And um, and I think also that the, to a degree, I think that they are hearing, um, they're listening to the few voices in among their membership roles who actually are, do have concerns, who are afraid. The, a lot of people in, in Connecticut, and I'll just say blue states again, have been fear-mongering. <laughs> I mean, this is certainly a deadly pandemic. There's no doubt about that. But the risk for um, for a bunch of people, including the cohort cohort of people that have been vaccinated, is ameliorated a lot. But you're not hearing a lot of that. You're still hearing panic, mm-hmm. and so I think a lot of the unions are hearing it in their roles and saying, "Okay, well, we'll just uh, we'll we'll default to caution here." But it's hurting the kids. Several days ago, there was a uh, one of those aforementioned um, state board meetings on the subject took place in Connecticut. Um, I, 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 I don't suspect you were there, but um, have you heard what the tone of that meeting was? Were there people yelling at each other and different points <laughs> of view? What was the tone of it from what you've heard? It was called impassioned. Uh, and in what I heard is from the union side, and I did hear a bunch of excerpts from it, uh, from the union side, it was defaulting to the phrase out of an abundance of caution, out of an, uh, an abundance of caution again, of course, which was, which was introduced really two years ago by Anthony Fauci. And, uh, for parents, it was, uh, it, it didn't get out of hand like a Loudoun County, Virginia. It wasn't, there was no incident like that. It was, uh, impassioned to please. It was really, it has gone, it seems in Connecticut, we did have the anger phase like everybody else did, but it seems like now these are pleas for, to try to salvage the mental well-being of, uh, of these kids. If, if it were not as clear as it is that the pandemic risk is lower now than it was, and to what degree, you know, that's arguable, but you, you know, you make a case, and I've heard you on the air basically say that, um, you know, the pandemic is on the way out. If it weren't on the way out, if the numbers were different, would you still be against the mask mandate um, in the schools, or would you have a uh, a modified uh, viewpoint on it? I'd still be against it, because the, the mask that they are requiring was, until the last couple of months, was a cloth face mask or a surgical mask, and those haven't been proven to be, to be uh, effective against COVID. COVID is a, a, a tiny particulate, uh, you know, um, element that uh, that is uh, permeating people's uh, sinuses, and so those masks don't do anything. Also, I'd be against it because there are vaccines. Teachers can get vaccinated, and people have been boosted. Everybody who's had the chance to get vaccinated essentially almost has. Now, if there's a few teachers who have comorbidities or and can't get vaccinated for whatever reason, I think the states received enough federal money that they should make accommodations for those teachers and find a fix right there. But there is, they're not doing this in most places in Europe. For little kids, we are harming the kids much more now than we're helping them. What are your thoughts in general about the, uh, the whole issue of vaccinations regarding COVID-19? Um, 
You know, I don't think that the I am vaccinated. I'm, I believe in vaccines generally. Uh, my faith in the healthcare bureaucracy has been diminished a lot over, over the last couple of years. These vaccines, it seems to me, weren't aren't quite as advertised, considering that it, it, that uh, people can still spread the disease with the vaccines. Um, but I think at the end of the day, they are lifesavers, and that it, it behooves people to to get them. That said. I've, I've got to say, Michael, I understand people who call up and they're hesitant because they don't believe in the vaccines and they don't believe in the establishment. I understand that they don't have faith in these healthcare um, healthcare institutions anymore. And and I got the vaccines despite that. I, I, I would have for a hard time convincing somebody that they should have total blind faith in Tony Fauci or the CDC anymore. But I default to uh, myself that the vaccines are uh, a lifesaver in the end and uh, and so I I got them what a what a what a very well thought out and honest answer I I, uh, I really appreciate your answer because it's a tough one uh, it's a quirky issue when you think about it that's the very talented talk show host Tom Shattuck of our Hartford Connecticut affiliate WTIC coming up next a conversation about the economy and its impact on a subject that is literally and figuratively close to home. You're plugged in to the Michael Harrison rap. This report is brought to you by Genesis 2 Project, G2P. Recently, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a preliminary report on possible threats posed by UFOs, now known as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and the progress the Department of Defense, UAP Task Force, has made in understanding any threats. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg is a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist who has been working with G2P to bring scientifically sound UAP data to the public. G2P has released the first scientifically authenticated documentation of UAPs, including images captured with infrared technology. Primo Forensics performed the digital forensic analysis. In tandem with the ODNI report, these data support the development of relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and government personnel upon encountering UAP. Visit Genesis2Project.com. Now with the Michael Harrison Wrap as we discuss the hottest topics of the past week in the national conversation. The economy is a complicated subject in the national conversation, and one industry that is being hugely impacted by it is real estate. To learn more, let's check in with attorney Steve Ebert of the Westchester branch of the national law firm in which he is a partner, Casson and Casson LLP. Attorney Ebert is a featured expert each week on the show Eye on Real Estate with Dottie Herman, heard on 970 AM The Answer in New York. Steve, you are 
one of the most respected attorneys in America when it comes to real estate, certainly on the radio, as uh, you're so well known to the folks that listen to you in the New York metropolitan area. So I want to I tap into something that the average person listening to this broadcast might wonder, especially if they are a homeowner or if they are thinking about being a homeowner. Um, people are worried. What do I do? I hear real estate is hot. Should I buy now? Should I wait for the prices to go down? Should I sell now while I can and get out? Or should I hold on to it? Should I refinance? I mean, all the economic talk that's going on with all of the different signals that people are getting can be very confusing. And uh, I'll bet you many, if not most of the people listening to this are in that category of um, having an interest in what's going to happen with real estate. So I know that's a, a tall order, but what would you advise the average person you know, to, to think about if they are thinking about getting in, getting out, or doing something with the asset to uh, profit in a way that takes advantage of the current circumstances. Michael, thanks for asking. You're so right on point because we've seen in the last few months a significant amount of volatility. Whether you're talking about the stock market or you're talking about interest rates or you're talking about other assets, and one of the key sectors is real estate. And real estate is not just making an investment in yourself and your home and your living, um, but also there's a bit of stability. And what's nice about it is you have an element of control. When you're looking to either purchase or sell a property, you can contract and make your own transaction. And that's a really important point. Now, right now, what we're seeing is a strong demand. It does depend a little bit about the type of market and where you are. And, and people need to consider when they're investing in real estate, they have a certain time horizon and also living within a certain payment. And we're seeing a lot of metrics which work very well for our clients. Is there something specific about the rise of crypto, cryptocurrency that is of specific interest to real estate people? And um, I know you're, you're, you're tuned into this more than I am. What should people know about cryptocurrency? Is it a fad? Is it a joke? Is it dangerous? Is it real? Is it early? Is, is it going to come eventually? What are your thoughts? Sure. Cryptocurrency is definitely in the early stages, and there's definitely an element of risk. When you think about it, you have a series of different currencies that are out there. You have different organizations coming out with currencies. You have some people who really don't have a track record, like Dogecoin that came out. And then you have Elon Musk who came out with Tesla coin, um, and that's debuting now. And then on the other extreme also, you have Facebook, which had a coin called Libra, which they've sold to a bank. So number one, there's a lot of movement. But when there's movement, there's opportunity. And you're really in the infancy of this as an asset class. Even the tax authorities, there's even there was a big case two weeks ago um, in federal court in New York, even getting into, is cryptocurrency... Is it a currency itself? Do people invest in, let's say, digital art, um, those NFT, those non-fungible tokens? Is it a hobby? Is it an investment? What is it? And there's an ongoing conversation. There's some different thoughts on that. And people need to be very aware of the tax consequences, because if you make an investment and now all of a sudden you're going to use your token, your cryptocurrency, to either purchase real estate or another asset, all of a sudden, are you now triggering a capital gains tax on that? So it's very important to understand the finer details. But one of the reasons that it's so interconnected is that in real estate, you have a private transaction. When you think about cryptocurrency, 
one of the value sets that comes along with it is that you can be decentralized, there's a certain level of being anonymous, and a real estate transaction is a private transaction. It's not buying stock on the stock exchange. It still has rules, and there are certain disclosure requirements that have grown over the years, but it's still private. And it's a great segue to invest. And a lot of the investors that we've seen in cryptocurrency who are now dealing with a softer asset appreciate having a hard, tangible, physical asset to really balance out their portfolio. So I think you're going to start seeing a higher percentage of people using a combination of cryptocurrency made with dollars, but also being part of the market. And a sophisticated seller would be doing themselves a disservice where if they didn't entertain it, they might be losing buyers and losing economic opportunities for their physical assets. How interesting. I have one more question for you. You used the word pivot. I want to pivot back to something um, with the real estate. There's a lot of talk, especially in this medium of talk radio, talk media, about inflation. And various um, reasons are cited. The supply chain slowed down is causing inflation. Their products are not getting to the market. Hopefully it'll change. Um, the workforce, uh, there aren't enough people to provide the services of delivering the goods uh, through the process of retail, etc., whatever it is. When I hear people talking about the inflation, if you can call it that, it's actually appreciation of the hot real estate market, I often hear people say there's high demand and low supply of real estate properties. But to the average guy like me, it appears that there are more real estate properties out there than ever before. You see, you, you see far more building being done than destruction and turning it into parks and farmland. <laughs> I mean, how does why is there a low supply of real estate at this point? What does that mean? It's a great question. You got to break it down a little bit because real estate is fundamentally the most local thing. And what happens is when you average certain statistics, you can get the wrong results. You know, one saying that we like to use in the office is someone who puts their head in an oven and their feet in the freezer is on average comfortable. <laughs> well, neither extreme is good. And so you got to look at that local market. Are you a primary residence market? Are you a second home market? Is where's retail going? Where's office space? And what you're going to find, if you really understand the local market, you're going to see these distortions in the market and see those opportunities. And we've seen a number of elements of growth. Second home markets, very critical. If you look in New York, for example, and also to a degree in Western Massachusetts, too, you're seeing in Cape Cod, you're seeing second home markets, maybe markets that weren't as active, all of a sudden becoming extremely more active. The concept of what is affordable, right, that's kind of a moving target. Um, affordability has also changed. And also, you got to look at the market. Are they attracting, is it really local buyers? Or is it maybe people who are a little bit more regional and where maybe they're all cash buyers where interest rates are not quite as sensitive. The other component out there is having the right type of housing. People are looking for different things out of housing. Is it a smart home? Is it also capable as people age and they want to age in place? Are they dealing with staircase issues or accessibility issues within the house? So part of it is also having the right kind of inventory. And then you're absolutely right. There is a, a general supply issue because homes maybe weren't built 
at the same rate they were because of COVID, the ability to get supplies. And the last part, and don't underestimate this, and there's a great story and a great really discussion going on in Los Angeles, is the materials being used to build at home. As we're having a conversation that not only is your house your home and your investment, but possibly a source of energy, right? People using homes, using solar, using other mechanisms to actually produce energy in a decentralized way in their home, we're reimagining what the home is in the society as well. And if you're seeing particularly some changes in building codes as to what materials homes have to be built out of. And that's really changing costs and the time it takes to build product as well. So a lot of really exciting things going on and a lot of influences at the same time. That's attorney and real estate expert Steve Ebert, heard weekly on the show Eye on Real Estate with Dottie Herman on AM 970, The Answer, in New York. To learn more, visit CassinLLP.com. Casson is spelled C-A-S-S-I-N. CassinLLP.com. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison Wrap. We have time for one more. But first, I want to tell you about all the inside information you can get about the inner workings of the talk media industry by visiting Talkers.com. That's talkers.com. It's got a bunch of stories, charts. It's got podcasts. It's got videos about the the talk radio and cable news talk television world. Talkers.com. Check it out. And now for our closing feature. Let's see what our Washington correspondent, Victoria Jones, executive director of the D.C. Radio Company, has to say about the Joe Rogan, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash dust-up. Victoria, back in the day, were you a fan of Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and Crosby, Stills, and Nash? Absolutely. Great music. Still is great music. Isn't it wild seeing these people involved in a current controversy about uh, free speech and about um, the issues of the day? Uh, This whole Joe Rogan situation, Um, not only is it extremely pertinent and contemporary, but because of the the nature of um, these 70-something artists being out there protesting and, uh, you know, making their stand uh, as somebody that used to play them on the radio back in the day when they were the cutting edge of everything controversial. I, I don't know. I guess there's an irony or a kick to it. It's fascinating. Everything old is new again. And they have always stood up for free speech in a way. It's it's sort of not surprising. And yet it is. Uh, and it's not just them. You know, you've got star podcaster Brene Brown, who has an exclusive deal with Spotify. Um, she's involved. And Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, who have an exclusive deal with Spotify, have decided to get in on the act as well. Um, now, they've expressed concerns. They actually have not withdrawn uh, their their podcasts from Spotify yet. This isn't actually a free speech issue, though, uh, in terms of a classical freedom of speech issue. Uh, nobody is denying anybody their free speech. Um, Spotify paid Rogan a lot of money to get the benefit of all of his followers. Um, he isn't all that much of an opinionator. He's more of an interviewer. M- many of the um, the problems that these artists have with what was said on his show is that he's giving time to people who they think um, are spreading misinformation about COVID. Of course, when you talk to the people who um, are, are in that movement, they think that, uh, that, that the people that think their misinformation is dangerous, they think they're actually the voices of freedom and, and that the people who are for vaccines and mandates and masks and all that are 
communists and suppressing freedom. So, so even though everybody is so sure their position is correct, it isn't that different than controversial issues in the past where the, par- the, the parties involved were so, uh, so many light years apart that they couldn't even begin to imagine that there was any um, value whatsoever uh, in the other you know, the other party, and I don't mean that politically, the other people's point of view. So so this is kind of profound in that regard. But you know what's really interesting is yeah. uh, the point has come up that artists only get a fraction of a penny for for their plays on Spotify, and they went and they gave Joe Rogan $100 million, reportedly, for being there. I think that's what's irking a lot of these artists, is that this guy's getting all that money, and they're on Spotify with their following, and they're hundreds of thousands. I, I have no idea how much how many people they draw to it, and, uh, and they get a, a fraction, a mere minuscule fraction of the action, if you know what I'm saying. Does that make any sense? Well, I think this is a key part of it, absolutely a key part of it. Spotify directly apparently paid a lot of money anyway for the exclusive rights to Rogan's podcast. And the company has said that his show has increased its ad revenue, its ad revenue, Mm -hmm. Spotify's ad revenue. So there is money involved here and there's free speech, there's money is it a platform? Is it a media company? This is business. Mm-hmm. This is a business issue. Absolutely. So uh, it, uh, it, it it's very much that he is to Spotify what Howard Stern uh, was and to a certain degree still is with Sirius XM Satellite Radio. That's the executive director of the DC radio company, Victoria Jones. And that about does it for this latest installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap, an overview of the national conversation, looking back at the week of Monday, January 31st through Friday, February 4th, 2022. Looking ahead, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week, including the ever-lurking unknown factor, that unanticipated surprise story that can take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. We sure do live in interesting times. I can be reached via email at michaelatalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. And if you want to stay in touch with the inner workings of the talk media industry, please visit talkers.com. The Michael Harrison Wrap. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Wrap is a production of Good Phone Communications presented in association with Talk Media Network and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.